Hi everyone, Jack here. This is a trigger warning as we will be discussing sexual assault in this episode. Listener discretion is advised. Before we start this episode, we have a quick message from our sponsors. If you're studying for the Foreign Service Officer Test like us, we have a great study tool for you. Besides listening to our podcast, we also use FSO Compass. On FSO Compass, you can find practice tests for every section, comprehensive courses that guide you through the entire application process, and you can even connect with other aspiring U.S. diplomats. The resources have really helped us prepare, and we hope they help you too. To access FSO Compass and get 10% off your annual subscription, be sure to use the link in our description box. Good luck! Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of How Did We Not Know That? I'm Nat. I'm Jack. And today Jack has a really great topic that I'm surprised we didn't cover last season. Yeah, I'm talking about the Japanese occupation of Korea. The reason why I'm covering it is because I was reading Eat a Peach by David Chang. (laughs) He's an American chef, but he has Korean heritage. And he was talking Mm -hmm. about how his grandpa kind of thought he was Japanese because of the Japanese occupation of Korea. And because of that, a lot of his restaurants that he owns, like he owns the Momofuku chain of restaurants Mm. and they all have an essence of Japanese influence and he says that comes from his grandpa and in the book it's more lightly written about than what the actual occupation was so this was just like a huge can of worms to open up and realize how much more intense this occupation was. Well, I'm excited to hear about that. Before we get into the episode, though, we have some really, really, really exciting news. We have an official How Did We Not Know That sticker. It's our first ever official merch. You guys should check out our Instagram. We're going to be posting it, our website as well. Basically, it's like a little, (laughs) it's got a little Abraham Lincoln cute little character that says how did we not know that so if you like our podcast please consider supporting us by ordering a sticker they're priced at three dollars each and you can order your sticker through our venmo account at hdwnkt please just let us know in the description your preferred mailing address Just as a reminder, because it is a Venmo, please flag it as private so we can keep your information safe. (laughs) And yeah, to all our lovely Patreon supporters, our patrons, uh, you will check your mail because you guys will all be receiving one as a gift for supporting us thus far. So yeah. (laughs) If you haven't sent us your mailing address to our patrons, please do so so we can get those out to you. Yeah, and just... Once again, thank you everyone for listening. We never thought we would be at this point where we have merch, but it's here, it's happening, it's real, and it's really great. It's a really amazing design, so yes, please check it out. All right, okay, without further ado, let's get into this episode. Just to set the stage and our expectations, this is one of the most brutal chapters of colonial rule in the entire world. In summary, Korea was officially annexed into the Empire of Japan in 1910, and this entered the period known as the Japanese Occupation of Korea, and that lasts for 35 years until it ends in 1945 with World War II. So I wasn't sure how far I should go back to kind of explain how this started, but I'm gonna... 
I'm going to start in like the late 1800s and early 1900s, but just know that Japanese presence has been in Korea for a bit longer than that, starting in like the 1500s with wars. But anyways, so... In 1895 to 1896, there's something known as the Cabo Reform. Like I said, the Japanese are already present in Korea. And during this time, Korea is going through a modernization. And this reform is led by pro-Japanese Korean officials. So background on Korean history, Korea has never actually invaded any other country. For their entire history, they've really just been trying to do their own thing and fighting off invasions from the Japanese, Chinese, Manchurians, and Russians. And so many people are split on what countries should have influence over them. Some people are pro-Russian, some are pro-Japanese, and then others are pro-self-governing. And although there were some pro-Japanese officials, there were also many anti-Japanese influences and guerrilla groups that were emerging around the country. Now, one of the most influential anti-Japanese figures was the Queen of Korea at the time, Empress Myung-sung, also known as Queen Min. And as part of the Cabo reform, Japan actually wrote a new constitution for Korea. In this constitution, they basically put a lot of pro-Japanese officials into higher parliament and just more positions of power. They also stationed a large number of Japanese troops to remain indefinitely in Korea. So Queen Min does not like that and she's getting concerned with Japan's growing control over Korea. So she starts to appeal to Russia and raise concerns about rising Japanese power in Korea. So Japanese officials in Seoul find out about this and they see her as a threat to the rise of Japan's control in Korea. So they end up assassinating Queen Min in her palace on October 8th of 1895. And to prevent any uprising from other countries with this assassination, Japan holds a trial for the group that assassinated her, but then acquits them all. So... Wow. Yeah, that's a strong bias. That's not a fair trial. Is this, like, the main palace in Seoul where this happened? Yeah. Like, the main... Because, have you been there before? Mm-hmm. Okay, because I toured there, like, a couple months ago. I was, like, walking around. And there's literally, like, the place where there's talking about a queen that was murdered by... Japanese assassins and they're like this is the room and like I didn't go inside because it was closed because of COVID but like I stood outside the room so I'm guessing it's Queen Min I don't know how many oh my goodness 100% has to be Queen Min no you definitely are right outside that room that's crazy (gasps) that's wild that's wild but anyway so she gets assassinated they have the trial everything's dropped and then there's a fear that the pro-Japanese officials are going to plan to murder the entire royal family so Emperor Gojong who is the uh, emperor at the time Mm. and the crown prince who is later Emperor Sonjong of Korea are smuggled out of a heavily pro-Japanese controlled palace and they flee to the Russian legation and which i don't know what the russian legation is i think it's the place oh (laughs) i looked it up and they're like i was like what's the russian legation it's like the place the crown prince fled to and i was like (laughs) okay that does not help me at all but anyways so the emperor after fleeing from the palace then he orders for pro-japanese officials such as the prime minister kim hong jip and all of his subordinates to be arrested and then the public opposition murders them so in october 1897 king gojong returns to the palace and proclaims the founding of the Korean Empire. And so this temporarily ends the Cabo reform and a pause on Japan's attempt to control Korea. So then we fast forward a little bit to 1904 to 1905 and we see the Russo-Japanese War. So a few years pass and Japan proposes a plan to divide Manchuria and Korea into spheres of influence with Russia. So he's 
they're basically like, hey, Russia, let's collaborate and then we can split up these territories. The Russians reject this plan. So then Japan launches a surprise naval attack and this starts the Russo-Japanese War. And the war ends with the Japanese defeating Russia. And then this makes Japan the first Asian country to successfully mm. defeat a Western power in modern history. So now Japan is really confident and they're really focused and they they have a dream to conquer all of Asia and create a huge Eastern empire that rejects all Western influence. So while this is happening, there's also growing tension between the USA and Japan due to the threat of Japanese claims over USA's territory in Asia, the Philippines, yeah. which we heard about in the, the Spanish-American War episode yeah. that we did, and as well as the treatment of, or our treatment of Japanese immigrants and the competition of economic and commercial opportunities in China. So mm. if this is news to any Americans listening, minorities are treated as second-class citizens, so the Japanese were not happy to find out that their immigrants to America were being mistreated. Mm. So, right, there's growing tension in America, but then we get to 1905, and eventually both the U.S. and Japan realize that they have the same interest in creating an open door policy for commercial expansion in China. So after the Russo-Japanese War, the U.S. president at the time, Theodore Roosevelt, acts as a mediator to Japan, and the U.S. Secretary of War, William Howard Taft, met with the Prime Minister Katsuro Taro in Japan. Taft and Katsuro end up concluding a secret agreement which is like, whew, this was scandalous at the time, where the United States acknowledged Japanese rule over Korea and condoned the Anglo-Japanese alliance in 1902 in return for Japan recognizing the U.S. control of the Philippines. And this becomes known as the Taft-Katsura Agreement of 1905. The United States is basically saying, yeah, sure, if you want to take over Korea, we're not going to do anything. It's like, let's both just turn the other way. Yeah, if you get out of the Philippines, then you can have Korea. That was basically the deal. Yeah. So anyways, after the war, the Russo-Japanese War, the Japanese sent Ito Hirobumi, who was a former prime minister of Japan, to Korea to negotiate the Japan-Korea Treaty of 1905. And this is going to turn Korea into a Japanese protectorate. And a protectorate is a state that is controlled and protected by another. He then becomes the resident general of Korea, where he begins to gradually reform economic and bureaucratic policies, as well as suppress Korean nationalism. So he has King Kojong, the emperor, abdicated, which means that his royal title is denounced. And King Kojong agreed to do this under duress, and then he appealed to outside nations for help against the Japanese. Not much happens with that. But the government in Japan then continues to pressure for the full annexation of Korea. And under the protectorate, Japanese presence in Korea multiplies tenfold. So most of them came to Busan, which is a city in the mm -hmm. south of South Korea. And much of the town was Japanese built. As this is going on, there are Korean nationalist guerrilla groups that are also emerging to fight against Japanese rule. And they end up shooting and killing Hirobumi, which is the former prime minister of Japan and resident general of Korea, yeah. in October of 1909. And so on the basis of... Oh, also, because the Japanese are building out a lot of infrastructure, people don't do this for free, right? So they're charging Korea with these debts. Ah. And so they're building out all of this stuff, and Korea can't pay this back. So on the basis of the unpaid debts for everything that they built, as well as the assassination of Hirobumi by Korean guerrilla groups, then Japan uses all of these reasons as the final straw to openly annex Korea. <laughs> it's so, like maniacal like 
oh, we're going to come build all this up, but then we're, like, charging you for it. It's like, like I'm said, this is colonialism squeezed into 35 years. Yeah. So anyways, we get into the annexation of Korea. So on August 22nd, 1910, Japan officially annexes Korea through the Japan-Korea Treaty of 1910, also known as Japan-Korea Annexation Treaty. And the Emperor of Japan now reigns over all of Korea, and we start a 35-year-long period of Japanese rule over Korea. In order to establish strong control over Korea, the Empire of Japan waged an all-out war on Korean culture, just completely trying to erase everything. Now we're just gonna go into detail, and this is literally, I think three pages of my notes are just everything the Japanese did, because <laughs> it was so much, and I was like, whoa, it's I didn't even really, think you could do that. It's really disturbing, and it's it's like every, they plan it out so methodically. Every aspect of your life. They really studied Western imperialism, and then yeah. just did the exact same thing. But okay, so I broke them up into subsections, so it's a little easier to go through. It's the Korean culture cultural genocide. So the first thing we have is aggressive policing. The Japanese pay off the royal family and elites, and then they give the Koreans who are loyal to the Japanese positions of power. So put Japanese sympathists in higher up ranks, and then they banned all right to assemble in political organizations. They also increased military and police forces in Korea to the point where there was one police officer for every 400 Koreans. And Koreans were not allowed to receive judicial review, so they would receive fines, jail terms, punishments such as whipping with bamboo canes, all without any opposition. So you get a fine, you don't have a trial, you're mm. just, you're under arrest. And then by 1912, they arrested over 50,000 Koreans. So that's in a span of two years. Wow. So then, next section, cultural destruction. They attempted to turn Korean history into a myth mm. and erase as much as they could of the culture. So the Japanese government tore down over one-third of the Korean royal palace, which had been built in Seoul in 1395, and the remaining part of the palace was turned into a tourist attraction for Japanese visitors, which is crazy to me. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, like when I visited it recently, it was like, all the buildings were like, oh yeah, this one has been rebuilt because it was burned down by the Japanese. And then they still have some of like, they burned down the building that originally existed and then the Japanese government, this was like their government headquarters. And so like it was like Japanese style architecture and it was just like, wow, it you could like, it's like seeing it with your own eyes, just how much they destroyed because it's a huge palace. And so they just burned down so many buildings that had been there for centuries i literally was just running through like la 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 like i had no yeah, idea no. <laughs> all the history that was just right there yeah it was a tourist attraction can you believe it yeah anyways so then the imperial japanese government also stole cultural and historical treasures and artifacts from korea and brought them back to japan but also used them as an example of how japan had civilized the country and also to uphold Japan's imperial image. So they really stole Korean art and then said, oh, look how, because Korean art is fantastic if you've ever mm. taken a look at it in their historical artifacts, but they use it as an example, like because of our influence, the Koreans have mm. been able to create these things and it was just a lie. So anyways, they also wrote about Koreans as backward and primitive in Japanese textbooks and museums. And this altered both external countries' views of Korea as well as Koreans' own perceptions of themselves. And that's really unfortunate because Japan Japan definitely had the most interaction with the Western powers during this time out of all the East 
Asian countries. So when Western powers hear Japanese history first, that's what they're going to believe is fact. Yeah. Next, we have land claims. So land in Korea had been handed down from generation to generation. Mm -hmm. You just live on this land as Koreans. But when the Japanese took over, they claimed all of the land under the government. Thus, families that had been living on that land for generations now turned into tenant farmers that had to pay rent to the Japanese. Just nuts. It's just a change in government, and all yeah. of a sudden you're now like a landless peasant. Yeah, nearly 100,000 Japanese families then settled in Korea with the land they had been given by the government, and they chopped down trees by the millions and planted non-native invasive species from Japan into Korea and basically transformed the landscape. Wow. I never even considered that. Like, because I've studied this before in class, but, like, I never even heard about the ecological impact, and that's, like, not something I would have thought about originally, but that's really interesting that you point that out. Yeah, so much stuff. Then heavy taxation and the economic effects. So they continued to heavily tax the country to pay for Japan and continued expansion and economic growth. And most Koreans could not compete with Japanese firms because Japanese companies received tax exemptions and Koreans were also charged interest rates up to 25% higher. So there's, if you want to start a small business, there's no way because you're going to get outcompeted yeah. by Japanese-owned businesses. Mm-hmm. So Korean workers were also paid much less than Japanese workers. And by 1939, all large-scale industries in Korea were owned by Japan. So, now we go, education and language. It's yeah. just like, there's literally <laughs> like so many subsections. <laughs> I actually have a question for you. Because you studied in Japan. Mm. Did they, did your friends talk about this at all? Did you hear about it at all from a Japanese school perspective? Uh, so, I will say, I so I studied abroad at Waseda University, which is a more liberal university. My international relations courses were all taught in English. And so, they were not taught by... Japanese professors. It was Americans, Australians, um, Canadians. So I did talk about it in many of my classes, specifically on the issues regarding comfort women, um, which I'm sure we're going to touch about. Yes. Okay. But so yeah, I did talk about it like in most of my classes, but I think it was because I was in a very like specialized course. Like most of my Japanese friends in my classes had either been educated in international schools in Tokyo or they had like lived abroad when they were younger. So I think their perspective is not the same as compared to my roommates. I had Japanese roommates and I honestly didn't bring it up with my roommates because it's a really heavy topic. Yeah. To answer your question, yes, I talked about it a lot, but I think it was because of my specific situation. I like never with my Japanese roommates or my Japanese friends outside of classes, we never brought it up. I think a lot of Japanese people are aware of what happened in Korea, maybe not every detail, but Japan's imperial reach was all over Southeast Asia and the Pacific. So I don't know if many people are aware of how many countries were colonized or affected by Japan's imperialism. Yeah. So anyway. No, you're totally right. I mean, we're going to get into it. I have my closing <laughs> thoughts, but I, I don't have any Japanese yeah. friends. I don't know. Because you're always telling me you have like Japanese friends. I'm like, literally, I like never meet Japanese people, I don't know. Yeah. Like, no one with... If I meet Japanese people, they're American. They're not born, raised in Japan yeah. or anything. 
So, and I didn't bring this up because I didn't know about the extent of it in Korea. So I didn't ask my Korean friends about it. But I do think that they probably yeah. learn about it a bit more. <laughs> than... Yeah, I was just about to say like, okay, so living in Korea currently, I think it's talked about very differently. I've discussed it a lot more, like a lot more frequently in Korea than I ever did in Japan. And I'm not even in an academic setting anymore. Like it's just- Just like on the street. With coworkers and friends. So yeah. No, it's wild. All right, well, not to stray too far, but we're gonna go into (laughs) education and language now um, as part of the imperial regime. And schools and universities forbade speaking Korean and emphasized manual labor and loyalty to the emperor of Japan. And so public Mm. places were renamed to Japanese names and films were made, were to be made in Japanese, not Korean anymore. It was a crime to teach history from Mm. non-approved texts and authorities burned over 200,000 Korean historical documents. That came up all the time. They burned a lot of uh, historical texts and artifacts from Korea. Mm. And they also controlled and censored Korean newspapers and magazines. And in school, Koreans had to recite an oath of loyalty to the emperor. And children were also forbidden from speaking Korean. In 1939, it became policy that Koreans had to abandon their birth names and adopt Japanese-style surnames. Mm. And... It was stated in Japanese laws that Koreans were, quote, graciously, unquote, allowed to choose Japanese surnames, but they were forced. It wasn't, they make it sound a lot nicer than it is, but if you did not choose a Japanese surname, you would not be able to enroll in school. You also would not be able to get food rations from the government. So at least 84% of all Koreans took on these names. Again, because people who lacked Japanese names were not recognized by the colonial bureaucracy, and the Japanese government still tries to use the way the law was written to be able to say that Koreans voluntarily made the choice to change their names. So that's all I'm going to say about that. So religion. The colonial government also tried to erase their religion and made Koreans worship the gods of Imperial Japan, including dead emperors and the spirits of war heroes who had helped them conquer Korea earlier in the century. And though some families got around the Shinto, yeah, this is like a Shinto, Shintoism edict. Although some families got around that by simply visiting the shrines and not praying there, others grudgingly adopted the new religious practices out of fear. And this forced worship was viewed as an act of cultural genocide by many Koreans, but for the colonists, it was seen as evidence that Koreans and Japanese were a single unified people. And then, okay, brace yourself. This is like the dark, dark, dark part. Yeah, are we getting into it? We're getting into World War II, human experiments, and comfort women. So when World War II happened, Korean men were conscripted to serve in the Japanese army, so a forced draft, and nearly 725,000 Korean workers were made to work in Japan and its other colonies during World War II. Also, Koreans were sent to an area known as Unit 731, and I I highly doubt most people know what this is, because this was like deep in there. I've never heard of this. So Unit 731 was created in the mid-1930s in Harbin, China, where the Japanese conducted chemical warfare research and development through lethal human experiments on an estimated 3,000 prisoners who were mostly from China and Korea. Oh my gosh. Wait, what do you mean by chemical warfare experience? Like testing like gases? Yeah, testing gases and bombs on prisoners. 
like oh my god okay so this is crazy and people haven't heard of this i think now there's more youtube videos being made about it so more people know but i didn't know about this till i went to korea so nat have you heard of the comfort women i have i have basically if all of that japanese imperialism wasn't enough they also kidnapped over 200,000 girls from korea as well as china burma Thailand, Vietnam, Malaysia, Manchuria and Inner Mongolia region of China, Taiwan, which was then a Japanese dependency, the Dutch East Indies, Portuguese Timor, New Guinea, and other Japanese-occupied territories. So this affected a lot of Asian countries, any Japanese territory. It was, yeah, it was literally like all of Southeast Asia and then parts of the Pacific. They call them comfort women, but these women were actually girls in their early teens, some as young as 13. They basically kidnapped hundreds of thousands of girls and used Mm. them as forced prostitutes for Japanese men. Yeah, these girls are actually in their early teens. And what would happen a lot is they would bait the girls by telling them that if they would come work in a factory in Japan, then they could, you know, make more money to provide for their family Mm. or like you're forced to go work in the factory in Japan. Or if a parent was in jail, they would say, oh, you can get an early bail for your parent if you come work for the factory. So they would lie to them about what work they were going to do. And then the girls would be taken to these comfort camps where they would be drugged with opium and then brutally raped and beaten multiple times a day, every day. And just some of the stories I was reading, sometimes it was up to eight years. Like, for some, one rape is too much, but it's multiple rapes a day. You can't even keep track, and it's every single day for years. It's horrible. I, like, my heart is just, like, so... Yeah. It's just so hard to hear how much they had to suffer. Like, all these these children also if a girl died they would just throw them in a dirt pile like objects just bury them in like piles it yeah i just feel like if you haven't heard of the comfort women please take some time to research it on your own just as a respect for what happened and this is why i guess this is why nat and i do what we do is because there's so much we don't know which you need to know because You can't just cover this stuff up and pretend it didn't happen and it's you owe respect to the generations before to do better so when i was in japan i went on a class field trip to a museum dedicated to comfort women of japanese imperialism however the museum itself it was run by japanese people mostly women and they were they had dedicated their entire lives to preserving the history of what japan did to all these women so going into the museum like it was hidden on like it was like on the fourth floor of this like really like this really discreet building like you would have never thought that there would be a museum it just looked like an apartment building and it's on the fourth floor and you have to go through like all these hallways it's hidden like if you would never be able to get there unless like you know someone who knows where it is yeah we talked to the to the docents and like the people who were working at this museum which was just a tiny office basically stacked with all these books and documents and then photos and diagrams and everything but it was hidden because like they had received so many bomb threats like people had come to the office with weapons like threatening to kill the members who worked at the museum because a lot of japanese people 
to this day refuse to accept that this comfort women situation is true, that they, a lot of people, not all Japanese people, of course, but there are a large number of people who deny that these comfort women ever existed. They say it was either voluntary or it's just a complete lie. And so the issue today, like, has never really been resolved. And it's like a really big tension point between South Korea and Japan because there hasn't really been any resolution. There、uh, hasn't really been an apology, or, and there's just、yeah. not a lot of productive dialogue between the two countries. And it's just like, it's just indescribable, like, how painful that is. And it's just completely horrifying. And I remember at the museum, When you first walk in, there's just a wall full of pictures of women who have come forward. It's really、yeah. sad because there's so many women who are still alive today, but obviously, like, they're getting older in age, and it's like they want to receive a resolution before it's too late. And so it was like this picture, this wall with all these pictures of these women, and there was like a white flower taped to like the photos of women who had already passed away. I don't know, time is running out for these like victims to. Or even just get recognition, like just recognition. Yeah, I guess to like close it as much as we can. After the Japanese lost World War II, they actually started to shoot and kill off the comfort women to try to erase the、mm-hmm. evidence that they had these comfort camps before the Allies arrived. Luckily, Some allies did arrive at the camps before they were able to do all that, which is why we have some survivors. And Asian Boss actually did an interview with both Kim Bok Dong and Estelita Dai, which I will link in the description for anyone who is interested. And they both talk about their experiences being slaved by the Japanese as comfort women. So please take a look at that. It's really powerful to hear their stories. Then to go into opposition, because we always want to highlight the opposition because、yeah. people don't take these things sitting down. So, though Japan occupied Korea for an entire generation, the Korean people did not submit passively to Japanese rule. And before the occupation, there were already resistance groups. During the occupation, protest movements were going on that pushed for Korean independence. And nationalist forces were actually forced to go abroad as exiles, and then they formed the Korean National Association in Hawaii in 1904. There was one student I read about、uh, named Yu Guan Sun, who was only 18 years old when she organized the March 1st independence movement against imperial Japanese colonial rule in Korea. This is an official holiday in Korea now.、Mm. And In 1919, this movement proclaimed Korean independence, and more than 1,500 peaceful demonstrations broke out. And the plan was to appeal to the conscience of the Japanese. However, this did not work, and the Japanese responded with brutal repression, arresting 47,000 Koreans, killing 7,500, and wounding 16,000. Oh my god. That's huge numbers. Yeah, Yu Guan Sun was put in jail where she was beaten, tortured, and presumably raped by Japanese officials, and then she died in prison. and Her last words were, Japan shall fall. Koreans also protested in ways such as refusing to speak Japanese or change their names, and underground nationalism movements emerged in groups such as the Party of 3000 worked to undermine the Japanese military after being conscripted to fight in World War II. 
another underground movement known as the Korean Language Research Society formed in 1921, and they created a dictionary with standard grammar and hangul, which is the Korean alphabet, to preserve the Korean language. Which was really good thinking to yeah. just like get it all standardized in a secret book. And also in 1941, Korean exiles living in China formed the Korean Restoration Army and fought with the Allied forces in China until the Japanese surrendered. So the Japanese, along with the other Axis powers, which were Germany and Italy, end up losing World War II and surrender in August 15th of 1945. And this marks the end of Japanese rule over Korea. And the armed forces of the Soviet Union and the United States then occupy the region. But unfortunately, the United States and the Soviet Union are divided over the control of the Korean Peninsula. The ultimate objective was for the Soviet Union and the U.S. to leave and let the Koreans figure it out and become independent. But this is when the Cold War starts to emerge and neither the Soviet Union nor the United States wants to give in to each other and they each want to influence how Korea is run. So, spoiler alert, there's a North and South Korea today, mm. so sounds like the country never got reunified, at least up to this mm. point. But lasting effects and reparations. So it was challenging for me to find a clear set of reparations that the Japanese gave to Korea for the occupation, if any, but I'll go into what I did find. So today, South Korea and Japan are technically allied against the threat of North Korea. However, the history of the occupation, especially the comfort women, like Nat was saying, add a huge strain to the relationship. And many Japanese sympathists will claim that Japan already apologized for the war in 1993 and again in 1995 and made reparations. However, there has never been an official apology from Japan to Korea made by the government as nothing has been ratified or approved by the executive branch as well as no laws have been enacted to acknowledge the country's responsibility. So the government also attempts to hide the severity and extent of Japanese occupation, often not teaching the topic in schools or brushing over what happened. The subject of comfort women is not taught at all in Japanese schools, and the government has made multiple attempts at paying countries to take down their statues that have been put up to remember the comfort women, and they pressure their allies to also remove any and all statues that display the event. So this happens a lot. In 2015, Japan and Korea signed an agreement for reparations again, but many Koreans, including the president at that time, felt the deal was unfair, especially because the apology was Japan was going to give them $8.3 million in reparation to the comfort mm. women, but it required the Korean government to take down all comfort women statues. No. So it's basically like, if we pay you this money, then you just erase this part, right? It's over. Yeah. But you can't. <laughs> There's no amount of money that would make that right, you know? Yeah. And it's also a conditional apology, so yeah. that's all I'll say on that. I don't yeah. want to get too into this. But also the government has claimed that the majority of these women were paid prostitutes who willingly signed up for these jobs. Just like, what child would sign up for that, mm. you know? And that many. Right, like it's, I just can't. And then the Japanese have also used the United States and Koreans treatment of and rape of women in Vietnam as justification for their treatment of comfort women, which there's no excuse for what Americans did in Vietnam, but I don't think you're off yeah, the, the Yeah, you know? like you could point fingers all you want, but it's not saying like, it's just, oh my gosh, like there have been so many atrocities committed all around the world. Like it's not like you can't just say, 
well, they did it too, so it's fine. No, you guys are all in the wrong. And exactly. same thing, like, I know, I don't want to get into a rant, but, like, when you're talking about education, like, that's literally what, like, all, maybe Japanese do- students don't learn about this in school, but, like, that's what our whole podcast is, all these things that we didn't learn in school about our own country. Yeah, so, like, it's right. not like everyone is off the hook, and let's fix everything. <laughs> exactly. As a final thing, on a brighter note, March 1st, which was the day of the independence protest in 1919, is a national holiday in South Korea and a reminder of both the resilience of the Korean people, but also the years of occupation they withstood. And just, like, for me to close as well on this, when I, I took a Korean history class, and I really think Korea is one of the most resilient countries I've ever learned about. If you just learn about their history, I feel like they've just been trying to live, and they've been going through so much. So it is really awesome to see kind of how well Koreans have maintained their culture and their heritage, despite so much outside influence by other countries. I agree wholeheartedly. Jack, that was really great. You did so such an incredible job covering such an intense uh, and heavy topic, but I learned a lot, and we will see you guys in the next episode. Yep. Bye! Bye. <laughs> <laughs> This has been an episode of How Did We Not Know That? If you liked it, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also follow us on all social media at HDWNKT and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Also, check out our website at HDWNKT.com to find all of our show notes and study guides for each episode. You can help us improve the quality of the podcast by becoming a history hero through our Patreon. Thank you for listening and see you guys next week.